Hi, my name is Marcus, and this is a companion podcast for the CG Jung Helpdesk Meetup Group. I host live events on Zoom every two weeks about the concepts and ideas of the Swiss psychologist Carl Gustav Jung. Every event, I give a presentation about the Jungian concept, so have fun with this event's topic. And we can begin. So, thanks for coming for this special event about Jung's views on mother, father, child. My original intention was to call this family, but I wanted to make it a little bit more specific because Jung talks very often about these things, about the relationships between partners, especially in a marriage, and also the childlike state. And I think it's a good way to get into certain Jungian concepts. And the very first concept and the very first idea that I found very cool when he talked about it, and which makes sense when you start understanding Jung is, he said, when you have a small child and the small child is neurotic, it's never the problem of the child. It's always a problem of the parents. And the reason for that goes back to how Jung sees the psyche and how it's working. And neurosis for him is always like a rift in the psyche, that there are certain parts that are not in harmony with each other. So you have in general your consciousness, which is very focused, very adapted to something, and can be too adapted to something and too focused on something so that the psyche, the unconscious, tries to create a counterbalance in a form of a complex. And a complex, best way to see it, is like a second personality that's acting inside the person. It's an autonomous psychic force that interferes with consciousness and it's poking it to say, you don't know everything, you're not everything you could be, so you need to take care of certain topics and certain problems. And this is always the unconscious pushing against the consciousness to steer it in a certain direction of development because the sense of consciousness is to adapt not only to the outside world, but also to the inside world, to psychological needs and to integrate everything that could be integrated into a whole complete human being and personality. So, but when you start with a child, a child does not really have consciousness, especially when you have a very small child. It's pure instinct, it's pure everything. Jung really describes consciousness as the ability to pay attention, to be aware, but also to act consciously with intent and a plan to also not do things. So all the things that children <laughs> normally are not so good at. So this impulse control, for example. So children are very, very close to like a basic state of how psyche works in human beings, so very close to human nature. So it's rather unusual that there could be a rift of something because it's instinctual. It's already, let's say, just as nature intended, like everything is unfiltered. So there can't be a rift, there can't be a disconnect. So it has to come from the outside. So how do it come that there are problems in the parents, the mother, the father, or the relationship between them that can come over into the child? And here, Jung has this idea about the unconscious to be very reactionary and compensatory to conscious contents. It means you have a reaction in the psyche, same as, for example, in the body. And the body has a virus infection. You don't know that you have a virus infection. Rather, you get symptoms. Like you get runny nose. You get temperature. And then you see on the symptoms, ah, okay, it seems like my body tries to kill it. So this is 
unconscious, the body just does instinctively reactive, and the unconscious works in the same way. So it tries to form a counterbalance to a conscious content. And this conscious content can also come from the outside. So it's really the unsolved problems that psychological problems that the parents can have get over to the child. And suddenly the child is acting up and seems to be neurotic, but it's not the problem of the child. And this will be very often a topic in this constellation for family for Jung, that there are problems coming over to other persons and being projected or transferred on stilt. And it's very similar to a view that Jung had about dreams, because dreams for him are also a reaction. It's just a visceral reaction of the compensatory function of the unconscious that you experience when you sleep. And it is this idea that because somebody is having a problem and they might not be aware of it, but there's this playing it in the outside world, it's part of the outside world. And the personal unconscious that one has and the psyche is reacting to this foreign outside expression and also starts to create a counterbalance. And this is how he says can these contents move from person to person. It's not like there's telepathy or something crazy going on in the background. It's really just the unconscious is constantly reacting to everything. It's rather way more perceptive than we are. So like when you are conscious and you focus on something, you can incredibly easily miss something because you're only focusing on a very small part, but the unconscious reacts to everything there is, right? So your body is also reacting to all the different influences that you might not be aware of, chemical reactions and so on. And it's not only in the body, but also in the psyche is the same way. Extremely complicated mechanisms all are happening in the background and doing this thing all by themselves without conscious interference. And to come back to this idea of dreams, Jung had a colleague who also interpreted dreams. And he noted this phenomena that you can also have the dreams of other persons because the dream, again, is a reaction, a compensatory reaction to contents that come into awareness in the, into the psyche. So this colleague of his had a very big house, like a villa in a very remote place. And the patients would come to him and he would have patients who would say, like, oh, I don't dream. I don't have dreams, which meant for Jung very often that these people don't have their dreams, but other people have them instead. So in this house, the therapist lived with his family and some staff because he was rich. He would let this patient there sleep and then talk to afterwards with his family, with his wife, with his children, with his staff to ask them about their dreams, to find out what the unconscious reaction was of the other persons. So it's really this idea that things can come into the unconscious because other people are showing them. And Jung really notices that you have a lot of impersonal stuff in your unconscious. It can be your human nature, but this can also be directly from other people. So children are highly perceptive in that regard, as we have in Germany the saying, Kindesmund tut Wahrheit kund, which means this language of children reveals the truth. Because it's, everything is unfiltered, they just pick it up and immediately react on that. There's no delay, there's no filtering. And this Highly perceptive state makes them very, very open and perceptive for all the problems that the parents can have. And he says, 
So when you have a child and it's acting neurotic, it does not make sense to inquire the unconscious of the child or to do therapy with them, but rather with the parents. And you said, especially with the mother. And you said the reason for them is, is pretty simple. As a child is a biological extension, bodily extension of the mother, psychologically, it's the same, that they are very close. So you have this with children, that it takes a long time for them to even get to the point where they can say either. It's really a separation between them and the rest of the world. And even later, to realize that they are a separate thing from the family. So children, unconscious, perceptive, reactive. And this is already a starting point for, to get all this dynamics that Jung talked about in the context of family relations. The other part, of course, are the partners. And he talks about it in a purely heterosexual way. So it's always a man and a woman who are married, which is others. He's like, it's a Swiss guy living over 100 years ago in Switzerland. <laughs> so this is his classical view. And he talks about how like, men and women come together and the relationship between them. And he sees there, again, very basic, very low psychological functions happening. And he gave that functions the names of Logos and Eros. And it's pretty simple. Logos is meaning separation of things and Eros is the combination of things. So there's a way to approach the world just to, okay, I will start to separate out. I will remove it. Like a symbol for the Logos is sort, which is the precise separation of certain parts to create something. You have this in a lot of mythology that the hero cuts off a dragon, the giant, the monster, and from the different parts creates the world, like from the bones, the mountains, and from the blood, the sea, and so on. This, this is a case of separation. While Eros tries to combine everything and tries to mingle everything together. And he saw there really the main difference between men and women. He said like, okay, every human being has this Logos and Eros because of two existential functions. It's like not like that one way one is better than the other, but rather each is a way to approach the world, to experience the world, and to act inside the world. And he said, men are a little bit more to the logos side, and women are more to the eros side. And he said, so when this is your being, and you're male and you're female, and you feel at home at that, then it's just the mode how you operate and how you perceive the world. But of course, everybody has everything in their psyche. The other part, which is a big part, is kind of split off because it's foreign. It's a little bit weird. When your way to operate is to separate everything down, it's counterproductive to say, okay, I'm now going to combine everything back together. right? Also, if you want to draw everything together, you don't want to separate it. And here, there's another concept of Jung that's a personification of unconscious contents. And this is a pretty big part. This is the figures of animus and anima, which is like the separate part of a person trying to interact. And here is the soul part. He also calls this the soul image. This is your fate. You need to go there with which you're not comfortable with. When you're a man, your female side, this anima side, femininity is your future. Otherwise, you wither and die because when you separate everything enough, everything becomes sterile and dead, right? So why I'm talking about this, this psychological need and foundation is acting also when people are looking around in the world 
to find, for example, a partner. So when people meet each other, man or woman, for Jung, that meant that the main interest, like that's in half the world's population is of the other sex, but you're interested in certain people from that sex. And he said, it's the people we are really interested in are the representation of this feminine side or masculine side that's missing from you, the representation of the anima of the animus. And this is a little bit like this cute idea from the Greek. There's a very old myth how human beings were created. And this very old idea was that in the past, all the human beings had four legs, four arms, two heads, and so on. It were like two human beings merged to each other. And the gods saw that people were very happy because they were like spinning wheels all the time, happy all the time, and they could not have humans being be happy. So they split them up into male and female. And what human beings then would do would always try to find this other half of the whole human being real, which is a cute idea that to say, okay, I try to find this missing part that's missing the God separated me from. And this is idea to say, okay, yeah, you have a representation already, an image of the ideal partner. And you try to find in the world someone who is most corresponding to that. So this is, of course, already not such a good thing because you will interact with real human beings, individual peoples with individual needs and so on. And you're coming there and you're projecting all those wishes and needs into the other person. This is already trouble with announcement. And when you meet someone, it's the first thing that you see this anima image. And the more you, you come to know a person, you learn more about their individuality. So this search for the other side, Jung had a very good example for that. When you have a story, and Jung liked mythology, stories, religion, and so on, you have the situation that the hero does not know what to do, the male hero. And he's at wit's end. He tried everything. Everything failed because it's always seeing the world through one lens, like the Logos lens, the separation lens, and so on, the masculine lens. When he does not know what to do, he will go to a witch. Very often, that's a lot of stories. Just I saw in the summer this movie from Netflix. It's called The Sea Monster or something like this. And there's a captain, and he really wants to kill some sea monster, and he does not know what to do, so he goes to a witch to get something ocean or something or weapon from her as soon as you leave the known ground everything seems strange and foreign and a little bit evil and supernatural and so on because it's not applying to all the rules that you are normally interacting with and he saw that really when you have this relationship that his example would be man that the woman for the man is always on this inferior side this dark he would call it shadow side it's a strange side right so you have Two people with a very different view into the world, but each of them have a partner for their weaker side inside. So it's like you have two people and one is left-handed and one is right-handed. And by combining them both, you can use both hands suddenly. And this is an incredibly optimistic and hopeful view to say, okay, it's meant to be that men and women are together, or let's say partners in general, just to make the best of the world and to also be psychologically sane to have this access to the part which is strange to you but you have like an ambassador who's really well versed in that <laughs> somebody who speaks a foreign language that you can interact with and that's positively regarded to you 
he noted this for a lot of his patients that when somebody was looking for a relationship and for a partner, they often tried to compensate their conscious known attitude uh, with something that they had the feeling that's missing. Like what you can't find inside, you try to find outside. So he said, you have a lot of businessmen who maybe have a lot of money, but lack education. And they would try to find a wife who's more like artistic. And when you have somebody who's introverted, they would rather look for someone who's extroverted. So it's like covering all the bases, all the ways you can experience the world to have somebody there to, to help. You have a fortress and you try to fill all the holes that could be there. Of course, this is the optimistic view, the rather not so... The difficult thing again is for Jung, when you have people and they come together, and you see this in love movies, it's a typical theme in love movies, the unconscious is reacting to each other. You meet someone and you know instantly if they're sympathetic to you, right? And you like them or you don't like them. And other people see it completely different, but it's always your individual feeling. And Jung saw that as your psyche being split out and you're trying to piece it together through your life by the relationships you have with people and the people you meet. But again, this can be something very threatening and also overwhelming. So what you have very often in love stories is that the two love interests hate each other in the beginning. And it's more like this conscious hate. It's the unconscious is already, the audience knows they are supposed to be together and they're matching, but they're fighting it because suddenly all those unconscious inferior side, shadow side qualities become very prevalent and start to push against the consciousness. And this can disintegrate the function of consciousness. Consciousness can get flooded, disintegrate, and the consciousness always tries to hold it together. So this is why in the beginning, the leads hate each other and try not to lose the individuality and get lost in this relationship, lost in the psychology of the other. And it's this conscious attempt of separation of this hating and talking bad about the other. All the love movies are like this. Like in the beginning, they hate each other, but then they come together, then they get separated again just to realize, oh yeah, it's true love, and then the movie is over. But the, all these psychological ways that people then interact with each other by projecting this anima image to have expectations and be confronted with their inferior side and trying to create a relationship to bring harmony, not only in the relationship, but also in the psyche that oneself has, is a very, very complex project and phenomena. And this is the, this is the stuff you always have as a problem, but there could be additional problems, which is, Jung talked about this, when you have problems, and this phenomena is called projection, and you don't see the problems in yourself because you don't want to see them in yourself. You start projecting all those negative qualities that you don't want to admit about yourself onto other people. And you start to hate those people <laughs> because you see all the stuff that you don't want to see in yourself. But it's like an easy trick to get out of the necessary work to accept these negative qualities about oneself. And very often, the, the first target are those closest to oneself. He noted that. When people have neurotic problems, the first victim is always a partner because suddenly they get all the psychological baggage helped over and they have to carry all this. 
And if this happens unconsciously with the other partner, it could be that they believe it. And all the evil stuff that one has in oneself and does not accept goes over to the other person and the other person starts to believe it. Yeah, this is example um, from a marriage and the woman was a cultist. It was like a sect and they were very arrogant. They said, we are pure and everybody else is like shit and they're not really needed and so on. And her partner was not in this sect, right? They were married, but he did not want to join. So she instilled unconsciously all those evil baggage into him that he questioned himself and he went crazy. And this went on for a long time until one day he snapped and killed her. And after it, he was sane again because now he was free from the influence of her. So this is a very extreme pathological example. So what do parents do when they have a child? We call it education. And this education Jung saw first and foremost to develop consciousness, to bring stability, integrity to consciousness, to teach children how to behave and also not to want to do, right? When you have a small child, you have to tell the child constantly what it's allowed not to do because they try to do everything all the time. And he said, this is the great thing about civilization and the great achievement of human beings to be able to foster and develop consciousness, to have a longer attention span, to really delve into details, into things. And he says, there's always the moral aspect also to not do things and to do that consciously. And that separates us from animals. An animal can't be evil because an animal is just following instincts. But human beings can be evil because they can willfully do all the bad things, but they can also willfully not do them. And this is the moral that's happening and it's all in consciousness. And through this education aspect, there's another great premise about Jung which is he was very, very, very focused on the individual and in the unique. He was strictly against any kind of systems or formulas or really categorization that would take away the individuality of a person or of a situation or of an experience. And you can really see it in his own work. Like there's not the system. You have a lot of concepts, ideas, and there's a network and everything has a lot of shades how they interact and when something is valid and when it's not. In contrast to Freud, who was a friend of Jung and they worked together a long time and they were very, very close friends. So Jung was supposed to be a successor for psychoanalysis until they had a falling out. And like, like Freud had a system and the system is you have an incest complex and you're not willing to admit it and this is why you're suffering. <laughs> so you have to be willing to say, yeah, yeah I, have a, I want to sleep with my, my mother or with my father. And this truth will set you free. And it's this very insistent thinking for, for complexes, which is completely separated from the person. And Jung said, when you're a therapist, you have to learn everything there is to know. You have to get the best education and so on, everything. You have to know it all. But when you sit down with a patient, forget everything. And Make it up as you go along and experience all the details and all the variation, all the individuality. And Jung really wrote a lot about children. He also has a book written about this, about children and children's education. And he said that the closer 
education is to a scientific truth, the closer it is to something very sterile and free from individuality. And he rather says that people and children are unique, and this has to be fostered in a good education. So, but like, how do you do education? And he, he already said, it's more important what you do than what you say, because saying is easy, something very conscious, so it can just form your words and design it in a way to sound nice, right? But it's more how you behave and what you do. And again, this disconnect between conscious and unconscious. Your speech can be very conscious. You know what you're saying in most cases, and you can design it in a way to give a certain presentation about yourself. But there's so much happening also in parallel that you're not aware of, but everybody else can see. For example, facial expressions, how your body moves, how your voice is, and so on. And this gives people already the impression, if this is true, if you're really following through with what you're saying, if there's a disconnect, if everything is in harmony, and so on. And here comes into play again this, that children are extremely perceptive. They're unconscious, but perceptive because the unconscious is incredibly perceptive. And they react rather how the person is than what, it, what the person says. Like, if it would be possible to educate people just by telling them what to do, we would be in paradise for millennia already, <laughs> right? So telling people what to do is, is not the hard part. It's to get people to actually do it. And he has said, yeah, you, you need to have like a clean consciousness and you have to have dealt with your own problems to not have a negative influence on the child. And this is, again, this, not the child can have a neurosis, but rather the parent has a neurosis. So these are the three parts. You have the child, you have the mother, you have the father. So how do they interact as a family? And what can go wrong? <laughs> because Jung was a therapist. He worked a lot with people who had problems and who wanted to better themselves. And the term that he's using is pathological, which is rather describing that something is extreme. So everything can become pathological when it's too much. A little bit like poison. Poison is a question of the amount, not really of the stuff. You can even get a water poisoning. You not really water poisoning, but you can fill yourself with water and drink so much water that soft tissue starts to swell in your brain. And suddenly, <laughs> your brain completely moves out. People are, can be dying of this. So it's really pathological means an extreme version of something. So when he would have patients, he would notice some phenomena called regression. And regression is something that became really known through psychoanalysis. They also coined the term, mainly Freud. But I will just explain what it means. So you have a grown person. And the grown person suddenly starts to think of all the stuff that happened in the past. This concept was made famous by Freud, who noticed this. He was the first person who really go through with this talking cure to talk, just let people talk and let themselves experience their thoughts, their ideas that they normally do not talk about. So to sit there in silence and let the patients talk in a completely space without criticism. And what 
Freud noticed was this effect that people started to talk about their childhood and then all the bad stuff that happened in their childhood. And this is how he formulated this idea, oh, okay, stuff happened in the childhood and traumatized the child. And this is why now this grown person has a problem. Jung was very familiar with psychoanalysis and he followed through his whole life and he was close to Freud. And he noticed some things about that and he had a disagreement about this. This is a very widely believed and popular view. Like you had a traumatic childhood and that's why you're a disturbed adult person now. And one of the main problems is the cases that Freud talked about. Later on, with time, it became clear that many of the things did not happen. So people would describe traumatic experiences that they said they had as a child, but this time it came out that these things never happened. And here Jung saw a fault in Freud's approach because Freud would never correct himself. Freud would write something down and then stand to it and he would never revise. And he told him like, yeah, by now I know <laughs> that many of these cases has not actually happened, but he did not want to break with this principle. So Jung saw this regression aspect as something very different because he saw it as when you have tuberculosis now, today, it's not because you had contact with the virus of tuberculosis when you were a child. There has to be a problem now. And he explained it like this, which led to the phenomena of regression. You have psychological forces called libido, which directs just, it's just the energy system of the psyche. He explained it like this. He said, this is the best metaphor he could come up with. And normally it's driving you to actions and it's also pushing you forward because your body, your psyche is getting older and pushing you in certain directions. Like in puberty, you suddenly become interested in the opposite sex on the same sex. And this is the psyche pushing along with the person on its way of life. But it's possible he described that the person hits a roadblock. So all those stuff that should push forward and flow forward can't. Because there's an object in the way that the person does not want to deal with for whatever reason. So all the stuff that should be flowing forward but can't, is then flowing backward. One aspect of libido is the activation of unconscious contents. So suddenly all the stuff in the past gets activated, all the images and the experiences and so on become very lively. Suddenly the person starts thinking about these things. And this is how I explained why in therapy, people immediately started by themselves to talk about their childhood and their experiences in childhood and how they think that it's influenced them in their current situation. And it's for Jung an activated past, which means, yeah, that there could be something there. But very often, it's rather that people are not taking care of very important tasks that now came up, like, okay, why do you have all these fantasies and ideas now, but not half a year ago or a year ago, right? And you notice as soon as this roadblock would get untangled, that this phenomena of regression would immediately stop. So he saw that as activated contents through libido that normally should move forward. But also he saw it in a little bit positive light in the sense that that psyche tries to find things in the past that could be useful now. And this is also, again, a function of the unconscious for Jung, that you have your consciousness where you everything known, everything is coherent, which is the other, and 
works and so on. But it's always limited. It's not enough and it has to go bigger and to grow. And it has to integrate unconscious concepts that are incompatible with everything that is there. So the whole human being has to change just to integrate new stuff. And what the unconscious does in fantasy and in dreams and so on is like stuff that you know and starts showing it and assembling it in a certain way to create what he called a symbol, which is something that is known but always pointing beyond itself. It's a little bit like a detective story. You know something is happening and you have all those clues, but you can't make heads and tails how everything is connected. And it's only when you have spent enough time with it and have enough clues that you say, this happened. And then suddenly everything makes sense. Everything is coherent. You can combine it. And this means it's integrated into consciousness when everything makes sense. This is really this insight that, oh, this is how everything is connected, which was my problem. And he saw that as part also why all things get activated to see, okay, there's somehow people maybe got lost on the way. So they have to relive the same situation that they maybe have not passed in the past to now find a way out of it, to move forward in their existing day to day. So this is regression, but you can also have like a general regression, which is just consciousness gets overwhelmed, killed, and everything becomes infantile. You get back in the state where there was no consciousness or very weak consciousness. So it's like, he noted he was in the war and he was a doctor that when soldiers got mortally wounded, they always screamed out for their mother. Never for their fathers, by the way, but always to the mother. And it's the same when you're in an extremely stressful or dangerous situation and you, or you don't know what to do, that you become more childlike. And this is also a form of regression. So this is the things that are associated with being infantile, even as a grown person. But he talks, of course, because it's psychoanalysis, also of the mother complex and the father complex. And he really talks about this in an archetypal way, as there are, you already have not only the image of your partner in you, but also the image of mother and father because this is what archetypes is archetypes are occurrences that happen so often in human experience that they became ingrained in human nature this is already evolutionary psychology that is something just happened so often that is already then part of the psychology of every human being human nature and it's the same with mother and father it's already there and it's rather that you try to, as a child, match the existing father and the existing mother with these images that you have. And of course, this can again be pathologized, uh, being brought to an extreme that the influence of the parents through this image that the child has in itself can be so prevalent that it can't really move out of this infantile state. And he noted that there's a huge difference between a mother complex and a father complex. A father complex, he noted, is when it's very strong, a carefree attitude about the world. Nothing bad can happen to me because in the end, father will take care of me. And he noted 
that for many men, the case is that they can really only become their own person once the father is dead. And this is something that Freud noted already. But he said, the real father does not have to be dead, but rather this image, this overbearing image, and the complex has to be gone. And he had some examples, Friedrich der Große, and he only rose to his heights after his father died. Or some artists, he noted, that only started to write once the father was dead, so where this influence was. But he said it does not have to be literal there, but also through therapy just to depotentiate this image of the overbearing father. And he notices very often with Catholics where the church takes over the part of the father. It's like, okay, yeah, I don't have psychological questions because when I have questions, I ask the church and they do everything. The mother part is, is different. And here it's, again, strong psychoanalytic roots of Jung to have this edible complex of this devouring mother that won't let the child grow up or let it get away. And he notices also in behavior of patients, especially his male patients, when they had this very strong mother complex in regards how they interact with other women. Because, again, this is this idea of the anima image that a man has in himself. The first female person man has contact with is the mother. So this can be such an overbearing image that the person can't move beyond this. Not all females in the world are the mother of a man. And the man has to separate himself from this image. And if it's overbearing, the behavior becomes very strange, especially towards women. So he noted that men who are sleeping around a lot, he called it Don Juan phenomena, that they were basically searching for the mother in other women, but could not find it, of course, because it's impossible to find the same person again, especially when it's mostly a psychological image that you're after, that they would be jumping around, jumping around, jumping around, and they cannot interact with the real female in front of them, but rather with this image that they can just can't find and they can't fill because the more you get to know a person, the more individuality comes on, the more that's disconnect to the image comes apparent. So they just move on and move on, move on and move on. But the other way around also, which is a complete abstinence from women and being a good little boy that will never leave the mother, just staying in the basement. And it's this different reactions to each other, which are, again, it's normal in a child to have a strong mother or father complex and to just see the world through the parents because the child can't take care of itself. It becomes a prominence, becomes a grown person and cannot move past this infantile stage because the stage is, in a way, the consciousness and the unconscious is saying, move along, go into the world, find a partner, do your own thing. It's constantly pushing against the consciousness. And this creates a neurotic state. Life wants to move on, but the person is not ready. But life comes and finds a way how to push people out of their mother's basement. And in this context, Jung credited Freud with finding the very first archetype, which is the Oedipus complex, the guy who slept with his mother unknowingly, but Freud saw it really as his conscious incest wish. Because in psychoanalysis, everything is very closely associated with the incest, which was which Jung bothered also because he said, like, no, there's more to human psychology than the incest complex. But he said, yeah, to have this archetypal understanding of the Oedipus complex, 
to have a certain mini drama happening in the psyche, which has a very predetermined path that's always there, but can be so activated in the unconscious that it's determining the person's life. He said Freud was the first one to find this archetype, the first archetype, and really define it in a clear manner. And what Jung did, he described the female equivalent, the Electra complex. But in general, Jung moved past this and uh, got more interested in archetypes in general, not only in a sexual context, but in a very general context. The influence that parents have on their children to a huge part is not only the stuff they don't want to deal with currently, but also the stuff they have not dealt with them their whole life. He said nothing is pressing more than unlived life to the person because the psyche is trying to find this integrated, harmonistic, everything is working together point of existence that consciousness is always blocking because consciousness is always dragging. It does not want to change. It does not want to adapt. It does not want to grow because there's always some sort of ego death that is causing a rift one's individual life. But especially when you have the children who are very unconsciously perceptive, get all these issues of the unlived lives of the parents. And the parents are not aware of it, but gets pushed over into the psychology of the child. And so it can happen that children can live completely unindividual again, life that's only confirming to the problems and the needs that the parents had. And he said, it's not given that these problems can be overcome. He said he met people who are about 40, 45, but they were psychologically children, completely dissolved in the family. And they then try to do catch up of the last 30, 35 years and to come to their own life. And he said, it's sad and it does not always work. He said, enough people are dying that are psychologically still children, completely dissolved in the family. He said, the family is a necessary stage of development. It's the first stage of development, but it's only for a certain time and you can get completely lost in it, completely entangled in a family. And he noticed that especially for women and for girls, that they can get caught up in the psychology of all the people around them, but not their own. So men not living their own life, but rather the life of other people. And he noticed this with a method that he developed called the association test, where he would have a list of roughly 200 words, and he would just give the word like car, train, marriage, and so on, and recall words that the people were saying. It's really interesting. It's a huge topic. I won't go too deeply into it, but he would do these tests, and he would do it on family members and would notice some patterns which are highly, highly interested. So, of course... The parents had a type, but it was already pretty close to each other. The children would completely match onto us, and especially on the mother. And when you would have sisters and one would get married to another man, this sister who got married off would take over the reaction type of her new husband. So that the women would be more adapting to their husband than rather the other way around. And it's this taking over types and being influenced by the psychology of the other that is a huge part for Jung for relationships and family and so on. And this living unconsciously creates problems, neurosis, because a neurosis and a complex is always a way to restore balance. It's always a healing 
procedure. Same when you have virus infection and you have fever. It's a good thing. Your body tries to get rid of the virus and tries to make you healthy again, even though you feel like crap in the procedure. So this is his view on psychological problems to invite them in and investigate them and not keep them in the dark. When we talk about family in general, Jung had very specific views on that. And it comes to this layering of the human psyche that I already mentioned now several times. You have your consciousness, let's say, on the top, and you make it like the sediment graphs where you can see like, okay, here live the dinosaurs and here are the bones. And then you have the different ages. And on the top where the sun is, this is our current date. He saw similar in the psyche that you're on the top, you have consciousness, and this is what you know of yourself and things you can do and so on. And then you have you all your unconscious, personal unconscious, where you have the stuff that is you, but you don't want to deal with. <laughs> and then starts the collective stuff. This is all the stuff that's not really personal, but it gets into human nature. And he saw there very specific layers. And okay, it's not only you, but as soon as you go psychologically deep enough, you hit the layer of your family. He said you have a family psychology that is common to all those family members of you. And he said, okay, you can go even deeper. That goes to like region, state, culture, and so on. All with different problems and psychological needs. But he said, this is explains why when you marry someone or go in a relationship with someone, it's not that you are only together with a person. You're also together with the whole family, the whole ancestry for hundreds of thousands of years because it's all connected and giving forward. He said there are certain complexes and psychological problems that just a child inherits, especially when everything happens very unconsciously. Because when it stays in the unconscious, it's unchanged. It always has the same potential to cause disturbance. It's only when it's integrated into consciousness, then it's under conscious control and can be used in a useful manner. And he says every family has some kind of spirit. And it's the same how family members look the same. When you have like a big family and you look at the pictures of them and also the past and past generations, you can find out, oh, there's the nose. We have a child now, but that's the nose from this ancestor and these are the ears from this one. And the hair is like this and so on. It's this Lego system of features, how people look like. And psychologically, it's the same. That stuff comes up again and again. There's just some psychological configurations that the child inherits, every human being inherits. And he noted those family members, the black sheep, right, that have problems psychologically. They're very neurotic. He said those are the closest to this family spirit and has the strongest influence on them. It's the biggest impersonal part pushing against consciousness again to create rifts and problems. So family neurosis, <laughs> something that just you get like, like a house, but some people don't get a house inherited, but rather psychological problems. Yeah, um, that would be all the views that I could find, and I found noteworthy where Jung talked about children, mother, father, family, relationships, and shared psychology. I think these were pretty good examples to get to some key concepts. I always try to teach like key concepts. 
how Jung saw the world because everything he did is extension of his worldview. And these main concepts I want to drive home are this individuality to have to say, okay, human beings, they're all different. They all have different needs and they all have a different path and so on. And to have the respect for that, either in the education of the child or also with uh, interaction with the partner. And also this reaction type of the unconscious, which is not something passive, but rather also something very active that can come up in certain situations, that you have archetypes that can be activated, that you have complexes that can form and suddenly cause problems. and that these problems can go over generations and they can move between people, between partners. And also this idea of the archetypes that influence everything. In the human nature, everything consists of archetypes. Everything is patterns and instincts and so on that can come up in specific situations. So that would conclude my presentation about mother, father, and child. I hope it was entertaining and you learned something. And now I will do a little pause and drink something because I talked a lot. <laughs> this was this event's topic. Thanks for tuning in. Doing an event, a discussion part follows after the presentation where all attendees discuss the just presented topic or other Jungian concepts. If you also want to join, find the group on meetup.com. The name of the group is CG Jung Helpdesk. Also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice. See you next time.